This morning we embark upon one of the most fascinating journeys of Bible study, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. The Apocalypsis Jesu Christu in the original language. Apo means to take away and Calypsis is a cover. Thus, the literal meaning of the title given to the book is that of an uncovering or a laying bare, a disclosure of that which has been previously concealed. Here we have, dear friends, a revealing of divine truth, a manifestation from God that lays bare that which has been hidden. Now, one might ask the question, is this the revealing of Jesus Christ when he returns to earth at his second advent? Or does the title mean that Jesus Christ is the one doing the revealing? Well, certainly both are true. Christ is revealed. We know that since his first advent, he has been hidden in his incarnate form. And here we're going to see him revealed. But he is also the one doing the revealing. But I might say that as you study the grammar of the text and the and the context, I believe the primary meaning of the title denotes that Jesus Christ is the one who is the revealer of that which was hidden. As we study this book, we will see that Jesus Christ is the one who received from God the Father this divine disclosure to give to John to show his bondservants. We will see that it is Christ who addresses the seven churches. It is Christ alone who we will see, is worthy to open the scroll of divine judgment and redemption in chapter 5. And it is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who reveals far more than just his second advent in chapter 19, but also all of the astounding events that lead up to his earthly return, as well as many amazing truths that will be subsequent to His glorious appearing. There's some introduction that is in order before we embark upon this study and even look at the text before us this morning. May I encourage you with the fact that this is the only book in the Bible that opens with a with a promise of a special blessing to those who not only hear it read and explained, but also who respond to it with heartfelt obedience. And it also is a book that closes with a stern warning of judgment against tampering with this text by adding to it or detracting from it, as we read in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. This is a clear, by the way, a clear prohibition against any further prophetic activity subsequent to this final prophecy in the canon of Scripture. And because of these promised blessings 
and curses, we must therefore approach this text of Scripture with the same care that we would all of Scripture, with the same exegetical precision and contextual consideration that we would every other passage of Scripture. We must be careful to rightly divide the word of truth, to be workmen that are not ashamed. Now, we are going to find in this book that there is an extensive use of figurative language and of symbols. But you must understand that not all prophecy is figurative or symbolic. So we must maintain a normal principle of Bible interpretation, a system that is often called a literal, grammatical, historical method of hermeneutics which is the science and art of Bible interpretation. Now, sadly, there are those who seemingly ignore these promises by rejecting the principles of a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation used to interpret all of the other passages of Scripture that are not prophetic. And they prefer instead to treat the prophetic literature as an allegory. To treat it more as kind of spiritual figurative language, a hermeneutic, therefore, that would spiritualize the word of God and thus impose upon it the fanciful imaginations of the interpreter. And for this reason, when you study those that do this, you will soon find that there are widely divergent interpretations in their systems that are utterly bereft of any authority or authenticity or perspicuity, which means the the clarity of Scripture. And therefore, I fear that very often these dear folks, many of whom are brothers in, in Christ that I love dearly, end up transforming the revelation of Jesus Christ into the revelation of human invention. The camps that fall into this particular category are really three. You have, first of all, the preterist position. Preterist, by the way, means past. And they would see the book of Revelation not as predictive of the future, but merely a historical record of the destruction of of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, this position is held by many reformed evangelicals, many friends of mine, maybe some of you. For example, they would uh, see the promises to Israel concerning the land and the nation and the coming kingdom, the messianic kingdom and so forth. They would spiritualize all of that and say that that really refers to the church and what is happening now in the church age. For example, in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Uh, that we read earlier this morning, where there's the promise of those ferocious animals that will be tamed in the millennial kingdom, they would spiritualize that and say that that refers to spiritual transformation, like you saw with Saul on um, the road to Damascus, where he was changed from a wolf-like predator of the church to a lamb-like follower of Christ, and so forth. Now, the problem with that kind of... Bible interpretation of the book of Revelation is is numerous, and I'm not going to use this as a time to have a 
thorough polemic of that particular position. We will see some of that as we go through in the months to come. But I might just add briefly that the book of Revelation was written around 96 A.D. during the reign of Domitian after the fall of Jerusalem, though many preterists will insist on an earlier dating based upon dubious exegesis of several passages within the book. But if the book was written after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it certainly couldn't have anything to do with that, of explaining that. And it also denies the book's claim to be prophetic, as we will see, not to mention Such a position neglects all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to a radically different conclusion, especially with respect to Israel, God's covenant people. Moreover, if you try to squeeze the events of A.D. 70 into those that are described in the details of the book of Revelation and into the chronology of the book of Revelation, especially the second coming, of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. If you try to say that all of that happens somehow in A.D. 70, I would humbly submit that that requires a wholesale abandon of the normal meaning of language in favor of pure imagination. Frankly, the cataclysmic judgments of the time of tribulation that we read about in Revelation and other passages involve a level of suffering that is unprecedented upon the earth, something that is global in scale, something that is cosmic in scale, not something that was merely confined to Jerusalem. In fact, the Holocaust and calamities perpetrated upon the Jewish people by by Hitler and Stalin far exceeded what happened in AD 70. There's also another position that would hold to the allegorical form of interpretation, the spiritualizing of prophetic literature, and that would be the historicist position. In other words, the present position. And they would allegorize the book of Revelation and equate the events that are described within it as merely describing various historical events in the church age. For example, they would read Revelation and they would see within it the fall of Rome to the barbarians, They would see the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, the advent of Islam, even the French Revolution. They would see, for example, the fifth seal found in Revelation 6, where uh, they believe it would describe the martyrdom under um, the Roman Emperor Diocletian in 284 through 304 A.D. This is a position held by some of the cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and even by the Seventh-day Adventists. And, of course, this also denies the book's claim to be a prophecy. Not to mention such a view forfeits any literal meaning of the text, any meaning even to the recipients of the text in favor of some obscure and fanciful interpretation devoid of any authority and absolutely bereft of any practical relevance. And then thirdly, there's the idealist. It's kind of the timeless idea of the book of Revelation. They believe that the prophetic passages merely teach great truths about God, that it merely describes the great battles between good and evil. And of course, these spiritual truths from their perspective could be applied to any time in history. They would argue that 
God has not revealed anything with respect to future events or the chronology of things to come, but everything is merely kind of an unrevealed mystery. And of course, again, this denies the book of Revelation's claim to be prophetic. It denies the chronology of the actual events, and it frankly diminishes our Lord's revelation to nothing more than an, than an anthology of myths, kind of like a, uh, a spiritual version of Aesop's fables to be used to impart spiritual wisdom. And I might add that I've read at length the champions of all of these positions. I've read many of the major subcategories of them, um, positions like amillennialism, supersessionism, the replacement theology position, postmillennialism, historical premillennialism. There's all kinds of these isms that are out there. And I have found them to be woefully in error as you examine them in light of Scripture based upon a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. I fear that they go to great lengths to avoid the normal meaning of Scripture in an effort to support some kind of theological system. Now, in contrast to these three systems, the preterist, the historicist, and the idealist, there is yet another, and that would be the futurist position. That position would be the one that I would hold to, the one that you will hear in the coming months and probably years as we go through this book. It rejects the allegorizing and spiritualizing method of Bible interpretation in favor of a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. I would ask you, why would you argue for a literal interpretation of, for example, the book of Genesis, God's inspired beginning, and then turn around and abandon that literary method for allegory? When it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the end of the story. There's approximately 333 Old Testament prophecies that speak of a coming deliverer. And we know that all of the prophecies pertaining to Christ's first advent, which would be a little over 100, were fulfilled literally. I ask you, that being the case, would you not expect that the rest of the prophecies would also be fulfilled literally? I believe that we must respect our Lord's clear words in verse 3 of chapter 1, that this is a prophecy, that these are words that can be heard, words that must be heeded for the time is near. John MacArthur speaks of this and he says, and I quote, prophetic literature compels us to give great glory and honor to our Lord for what he will do in the future, just as we praise him for what he has done in the past. The end of the story matters then because God himself revealed it to us and he did so for a reason so that his people would glorify him through their trust and obedience rather than living in fear about what the future holds. End quote. Now, I concede that there are many passages in the book of Revelation and in other passages of prophetic literature that we do not understand. For example, we're going to come to the mark of the beast and the number 666. I don't have a clue what that means. And no, nobody else really does either. 
uh, we have some positions and we can think this and think that, but ultimately it's conjecture. And when you come to those places, you need to admit that. However, I would submit to you that those people during that day will know precisely what it means during that time of tribulation. So we must never impose our own creative interpretations upon texts that, frankly, we don't fully understand. We don't want to fall into a camp of sensationalizing the word of God and imposing upon it things that we think it means when there's no exegetical or contextual or other biblical support for such a position. We must leave those things to be fully explained in a day yet future. But dear friends, please hear me. Even though there are many mystifying symbols and baffling images in the book of Revelation, most of them can be interpreted in light of other passages of Scripture, giving the audience of that day and, frankly, all of the saints from that day a profound unveiling of what is coming upon the earth and the future of all people. Prophecies, frankly, that should sober us to godliness and evangelism. Prophecies that should stir our hearts to praise as we contemplate the majesty and the excellency and the glory and the sovereignty of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Now, herein is the great application of prophetic truth when we study it. Truths that will bring about blessing when it is heard and when it is obeyed. John Walbert aptly stated it this way, quote, The immediate application of distant events is familiar in Scripture. As, for instance, 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, which speaks of the ultimate disillusion of the earth. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, the succeeding passage makes an immediate application. And there he refers to 2 Peter 3, 14, where we read, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. To be at peace with God, to have full assurance that he is sovereignly in control of all things and to have a character that is spotless and blameless as we await the day of his coming. Now, dear friends, like never before in the history of the earth, we are now seeing undeniable events occurring all around us that point to a climax of human history. Events that I believe are a preview of predictive prophecy. In fact, our statistics with respect to the Internet ministry of this pulpit indicate that the prophetic discourses that come from this pulpit are by far the most popular among the listeners around the world, both in the United States and in other countries. And frankly, any honest person that looks around them, that listens to the news, must admit that the world is spiraling out of control. And it is not spiraling upward towards utopia, but it is spiraling downward towards catastrophe. We look around us and we are constantly aware of the threat of terrorism. We are aware of the dangers of the weapons of mass destruction that can literally destroy entire continents. We see the rise of radical Islam 
We see Iran and what they are doing in the Gaza Strip and on the West Bank and in Lebanon and Syria with Hezbollah and Hamas as they try to destroy Israel. In fact, the motivation of Ahmadinejab, the leader of Iran, is that of Islamic Jihad, a holy war whereby they will produce, they believe, an apocalyptic chaos that is so great that it will bring in the 12th Imam, which is the Islamic Messiah. <coughs> in fact, he said, and I quote, our revolution's main mission is to pave the way for the appearance of the 12th Imam, the Mahdi, end quote. And of course, key to all of that is the destruction of Israel to wipe them off of the face of the earth and to destroy the United States. Recently, in one of their parades, you could see draped over their long range missiles. Some banners that say death to America. People look around and they see this. And they are afraid. We look around and we see the economic meltdown of the United States economy with no end in sight. We see corruption in our government. We see the utter inability of our politicians to even govern themselves, much less solve problems in our society. We see a burgeoning hatred of the United States of America. And even within the United States, we see an increasing hatred of Bible-believing Christians, the butt of most jokes. We see the moral freefall in the United States of America. We see apostasy in the church that is absolutely staggering. All you need to do is go to your local Christian bookstore and grab some of the best sellers off of their main rack when you come into the door. And I assure you, you will find within them much apostasy. Things that have absolutely no basis in Scripture. Heresy upon heresy. We witness even the miracle of an Israeli state and the gathering forces around that tiny little country, forces hell-bent on destroying her. Isn't it amazing how it seems like the problem of the whole world is there in Jerusalem? Now, people look at all of this and they ask the question, and rightfully so, what on earth is going on? Well, dear friends, I would submit to you that God answers that question in his word, especially here in his revelation. And that's why in verse three of chapter one, we read, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, a bit more background here. This revelation was given to John from God through an angel and he pinned it. John was the son of Zebedee. It was given to him while he was an exile on the Isle of Patmos. The authorship of this book is virtually undisputed. This was John, who was one of the twelve apostles, the author of the fourth gospel that bears his name and of the epistles of John. 
And he wrote this revelation near the end of Domitian's reign in about A.D. 96. I might add that this is a date widely held by the early church in contrast to the dating held by the preterists that has virtually no support from external evidence. This was the date held by church fathers such as Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Victorinus, Eusebius, Jerome, and Arrhenius. They all confirmed this date. In fact, Arrhenius wrote this, quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision, the book of Revelation, for that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of of Domitian's reign. <clears throat> Unlike the persecution of the church under Nero that was limited in scope primarily to the Christians in Rome, when you study history, you will see that Domitian's cruel maltreatment was very widespread as he endeavored to advance his cult of emperor worship. And according to tradition, John left Palestine for Asia Minor around the time of the Jewish revolt in A.D. 66 through 70. Now, friends, as we approach our text, we find the beloved apostle now about 90 years old, banished to a tiny, tiny island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, an island about 10 by 6 miles an island about 30 miles south of Ephesus, a place where Romans sent those that they thought were political troublemakers and put them to work doing hard labor. This is where the beloved apostle was when he received this revelation. <laughs> Hardly a testimony to the blasphemous prosperity gospel that is taught today. And there in that earthly hell, he receives this amazing revelation. Beloved, please hear this. We have before us the summation of God's plan of redemption. We have here the last chapter of human history. We have a detailed account of the consummation of all things. We have the final pieces of a great puzzle of prophetic truths that were first laid out and revealed to us in the Old Testament and even in the New. In fact, 278 of its 404 verses allude to three divisions in the Old Testament, primarily from Daniel, followed by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Psalms. Here, dear friends, we will read of the glory and the majesty of Christ as He conquers Satan, sin, and death. We will read of the unveiling here of the increased apostasy that will fall upon the church that claims to be the church of Jesus Christ. We will read of the snatching away of the church in some of the nuances of the text. We will read of God's judgment upon the nations and all those that hate Him. If you want to know what's going to happen to Russia and to China and to the nations of Islam that hate Israel, you will see it here. 
There will be a vivid chronology of seven years of unprecedented and unimaginable tribulation that is going to fall upon the earth. Here we have before us a disclosure of what will ultimately happen to Israel, including the final fulfillments of his promises to them and their ultimate salvation when all Israel will be saved, as Paul said in Romans 11. We are going to read a description of the rise of a one world government and the reign of the most vicious and vile dictator in the history of the world. The Antichrist. This book portrays Christ's return to earth with his saints. The battle of Armageddon, the establishment of his millennial reign upon the earth and the ending of the times of the Gentiles in which we now live. It reveals to us the final judgment that awaits Satan and his minions. It discloses to us the great white throne judgment, which will be a time and a place where the fate of unrepentant sinners will be declared. And it describes hell, the lake of fire, the final state of those who have refused to believe in him as Savior and serve him as Lord. And it reveals also the final state of the redeemed and the glories of a new heaven and a new earth. Here, dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals to us The consummation of redemptive history, a time where he will be glorified as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in his revelation, he describes himself with many titles. He calls himself the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. The Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty, the living one, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who has the sharp two edged sword, the son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. He goes on to describe himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the one who is holy, who is true, the holder of the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb of God, the Lord, holy and true, the one who is called faithful and true, the word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in this book, we will see Christ, the Messiah, ruling on earth with his glorified saints, where Jesus is called the root and the descendant of David, the bright And morning star. Beloved, please hear me. God has disclosed these astounding truths to every believer. And we must rejoice in the blessing that can be ours when we hear it and when we heed it. And likewise, we should tremble if we ever attempt to add or detract from it. Let me read to you this morning the text that we will look at for a few minutes. Here in Revelation 1, the prologue of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. I want to read verses 1 through 8. And this morning we will look specifically at the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. 
And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the signature of God that signs this glorious prologue. I've divided it into five sections. We will see the essence of the revelation, the blessing, the benediction, the doxology, as well as the theme of revelation. And this morning we will look specifically at the essence of the revelation and the blessing. Notice first the essence. In other words, the heart, the core, the fundamental nature of this glorious disclosure in verse one. Again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. As I said earlier, the apocalypsis, Jesu Christu, apo, to take away, calypsis, a cover, literally an uncovering, a laying bare, an unveiling of that which has been concealed, this revealing of divine truth. Christ is revealed and he is the one doing the revealing. But again, I would remind you that. The primary meaning of the title denotes Christ as the revealer of that which was hidden. And notice, it's a revelation which God gave him. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who received from God the Father this magnificent disclosure to give to John to show his bondservants. Beloved, please understand, here we have a detailed account of the father's gift to the son. That he might be exalted upon the earth, having once emptied himself and taking upon himself the form of a bondservant in the likeness of men. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Beloved, this is the infallible record of that coming day of exaltation. Here we have before us a detailed description of the son's inheritance from the father. A document to be shown ultimately to his bondservants. 
Bond servants is a reference to those who are willing slaves. Are you a willing slave of Christ? This is a term rooted in the concept of a pierced ear for the bond slave, as we read in Exodus 21. You might recall that a Hebrew slave would be required to work for six years, and then on the seventh year, he had to be set free. But the text says, if the slave plainly says in Exodus 21, verse 5, I love my master. And he goes on to say, and I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently. This revelation is to be shown to these type of people, to his bond servants. And you must understand that the meaning of this revelation will be utter foolishness to non-believers because they have no capacity to grasp divine truth because they are spiritually dead. I've had people in the past, one guy that I remember a few years ago, I was on a plane and I was reading some of this and he was asking me about it. And I remember him saying to me, kind of the common phrase, you don't really believe all that stuff, do you? And I said to him, yes, I do, with all of my heart. And I had a chance to share with him what the book says. And isn't it interesting when you turn on the television and you hear all of the political pundits and the so-called experts out there, how they laugh about those who believe in a battle of Armageddon or those doomsday people, those people that believe in the end of the world and they just mock and laugh. Of course, this should be no surprise to us. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 13, verse 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And he went on to say in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But here, dear friends, He speaks of the things, in verse 1, the things which must shortly take place. The word shortly can be translated soon. Tacos in the original language. It is a term that is repeatedly used in the New Testament to denote the idea of imminence and even nearness of an event. It's as if to say persecuted Christians don't have to wait too long. Because a day of Christ's return is imminent. It is forthcoming. It is pending. It is looming on the horizon. It's interesting. Daniel detailed these events and said that they will be be fulfilled in the latter days, chapter 228. And after this, in chapter 2 and verse 29 and verse 45 as well. And even Jesus indicated that there must be certain things that will happen first, according to Luke 12, 21, 9. And Jesus said, and that the end is not yet in Matthew 24, 6. But now, beloved, please hear this. But now, for the first time, the writer is telling us that these events are ready to come to fruition. Unlike the earlier prophets, John can now say these things are imminent. The time is near in verse 30, verse 3. 
And even as Jesus said in chapter 22, verse 6, behold, I come soon. Now, some will say, well, yeah, but my goodness, it's been 2000 years. True. But you must understand that God's standard of time, the way he measures time is radically different than the way we do. Second Peter 3, 8, we read with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So, beloved, his return is imminent. It is right on schedule. And what a powerful motivation this should be for holy living. Notice more of the essence of the revelation in verse one. It says, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Revelation is unique in the New Testament. It is the only book communicated to an author by an angel. Even as angels were involved in the giving of the law to Moses. And yet, by the inspiration of God, through this angelic messenger, John is the author. And in verse 2, we read, he is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. As I read this text, I'm reminded again that God has gone to great lengths to communicate these truths, even with all of the mysterious symbols and images. Therefore, we must likewise be very, very careful to approach God's self-disclosure with equal care as we would any other passage of Scripture and translate it like we would any other passage because it is the Word of God. So in summary, dear friends, here we have in, this, in these first two verses the essence of the book of Revelation. If I can summarize it, it is simply this. It is a divine disclosure of previously hidden truths given to Jesus Christ from God the Father as a description of His glorious inheritance, events that are now imminent, that are pending, communicated to John by an angel, and then for him to give testimony of all that he saw and give to his bondservants, or to the bondservants of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the blessing of the revelation in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, friends, this is one of seven Beatitudes promised in Revelation. And as we approach them, we will discover that each one of them Give a promise of blessing to those who are committed to the divine standards of holiness. And you might also need to understand that early Christians did not possess copies of a Bible. They did not have copies of Scripture. They were very, very expensive and extremely rare. In fact, most churches of that day only had one copy. So... They read it publicly and the people listened so carefully that they memorized the text. You will be reminded of James words when he warned believers not to be mere hearers, but doers of the word would that we be so devoted. And so therefore. Blessed, he says, is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Three Greek participles translated here. Read.
obviously for their good, but ultimately for your glory. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.